Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by author Edward Lucas. He wrote a fantastic book called The New Cold War that warned against the dangers of an aggressive Russia. When the book came out, sadly, it was largely ignored and even ridiculed in some places, but it has become largely prophetic, especially in light of recent events such as the invasion of Ukraine and the countless assassinations of Russians abroad. On today's podcast, we will be looking at the death of Alexei Navalny, who was largely considered the de facto head of the opposition to Putin in Russia. Navalny was imprisoned in 2021 and he has now died whilst in custody in Russia under circumstances not yet known. He may well have been poisoned, he may well have been beaten to death, or he may well have died of natural causes due to neglect. The Russian authorities refuse to release his body and until it is independently seen, it will be difficult to verify exactly how he died. One other note as well, Edward was selected by the Liberal Democrat Party as a prospective parliamentary candidate for the constituency of the cities of London and Westminster and he will be a candidate in the next general election, which is expected to take place in 2024 or early 2025. I hope you find this episode interesting. I really enjoyed my conversation with Edward as always, and I found it deeply fascinating, and I hope you do as well. Thank you for listening, and take care. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, Edward. How are you? I've never a dull moment, and I'm sadly often not a nice one either. No, no, indeed, indeed. Unfortunately, one of the uh, difficulties of doing a podcast about espionage and geopolitics, it does get a bit heavy, and most conversations are around dark topics, but uh, we, we try our best to, uh, to sort of inform and, and keep them relatively light. So we're here today to talk about the death of Alexei Navalny, and I was wondering if you could give us a bit of sort of background about Navalny and how he came to be seen by Putin as a threat to his leadership. Putin's weakest point is his corruption, and Russians have quite a high tolerance for corruption, but it's not infinite. And what Navalny did was to highlight the grotesque, often very vulgar, um, ways in which the Russian elite spend the money that they steal. Um, everything from flashy sports cars in Western countries through to enormous palaces in Russia. And he pioneered the use of very sharp, well-produced videos, um, which came out from his anti-corruption foundation using a kind of sardonic, slightly despairing um, tone, which fits very well with the sort of Russian black humor, um, which is a national characteristic. 
And so it was perfectly judged within Russia to get people cross and to make them feel they could do something about it. And he set up a nationwide organization, which is really quite difficult to do in a country as big as Russia, of anti-corruption activists. Um, that was the kind of backbone of his effort. He also did run for president. Um, he had uh, you know, good ties with other parts of the Russian opposition who disagreed with him often on politics. So the sort of lefty feminists of Pussy Riot were not his natural allies, but they said, we're all trying to you know, do the same thing. And we look forward to um, opposing him vigorously in the first free election post-Putin. Um, my, my worry about Navalny was that I feel that at heart, he was basically a Russian imperialist. And there's a very striking lack of um, sympathy for his widow or support for his cause from Ukraine. Well, what is known about the sort of circumstances of his death, and why do you think the Russian authorities are kind of holding on to his body? Well, as always in Russia, there is a lot of mystery, and sometimes it's incompetence, and sometimes it's conspiracy. So, at one point, Yulia Navalnaya, his widow, who's now led to prominence, having always been rather in the background, said it was Novichok. There's another theory that she was killed with a single yeah. blow to the heart, which is a KGB specialty. Um, but until his body's released, and maybe even after his body's released um, from the authorities, we won't really know. And in a way, I think it's not the point. You know, Once you are in the prison system, you are in the custody, both in a negative and positive sense, of the authorities. And it's their responsibility, um, whoever you are, innocent or guilty, famous or humble, to keep you healthy and safe. And clearly they didn't. And whatever the exact combinations of circumstances are that led to his death, I think it's quite fair to lay the blame um, at the feet of Vladimir Putin, just as we do with um, other victims of the regime, such as Boris Nemtsov, shot outside the Kremlin, or Anna Podikovskaya, my journalist colleague, who was shot in the stairwell of her own apartment block on Putin's birthday. Yeah, and Navalny was this prison he was in was one of the harshest prisons you could be in in Russia, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. So, and they were, um, you know, it was in the Arctic Circle, and apparently they they had to stand outside um, in light clothing in minus twenty five degrees conditions, and could be sprayed with water, or in the spring bitten by insects and sprayed by water. It seemed pretty pretty dreadful place to put someone. Yes, but I do worry a bit that we are over. I mean, it is appalling, and there are many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in appalling conditions in the Russian penal system. Yeah. Um, it's not always as bad as this. This was a sort of harsh regime penal colony. Um, in other places, it's, uh, it's it's monotonous food and sort of you know, p persistent petty harassment, but it's not life-threatening. But I do think we are, the focus has got to be on Ukraine and its struggle. Because every day, mm. people who we've never heard of, who are just as brave as Navalny, uh, and maybe even more admirable, are being killed by the Kremlin war machine as they try and defend their country from Kremlin aggression. And I think there's a kind of epistemic privilege, perhaps, about being Russian, that you instantly attract attention. And it's it's right that we should mourn Navalny and we should in, you know, analyze the circumstance of his death and their significance. But let's keep the focus on the real Russian opposition, mm -hmm. the only people who are actually giving the Kremlin a headache, and that's the armed forces of Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Do you think we have become a bit guilty of being a bit sort of um, 
too optimistic about Navalny and the changes he may or may not have been able to make in Russia. Well, wishful thinking's been our curse ever since the 1980s. You know, we were, and and in, in indeed even before. You know, we were wildly enthusiastic about Gorbachev, misplaced about Yeltsin, also misplaced about Putin, misplaced about the opposition's ability to derail Putin misplaced about Medvedev when he came in misplaced then again another lot of opposition misplaced I'm optimistic in in many ways about Ukraine's ability to um roll back um Russian invasion um last summer that was also misplaced so I'm I'm no stranger to misplaced optimism um it's unfortunately a substitute for the hard decisions and big sacrifices that we actually need to make to deal with our security problems with Russia and others. And at, the longer we carry on with wishful thinking, the bigger the costs and the harder the decisions become. Mm, indeed, indeed. Do you think leaders in the West are really taking the threat from Russia seriously now? Because up until recently, there's been a lot of what I call late 90s thinking in which people sort of believe Russia wasn't really hostile. Um, and are we even really able to cope with a hostile Russia now? No, we're not really. And I think there's a, there's a big, I mean, if you look at Europe, there's a big division between the countries that will fight no matter what, which is the Baltic states, the Finns and the Poles, basically, to some extent also, I think the Swedes and maybe the Norwegians and the Danes on a good day. There's the countries that won't fight and are profoundly against this, and that would be include Ireland, famous free rider, um, the Austrians who are sort of money laundering cesspit, um, the Hungarians who are in the Kremlin's pockets, and a whole load of other countries that just don't see it as their business. And then there's a sort of muddled middle of countries that kind of get it, but also not really able to get into the frame of mind they need to do, need to be to, to deal with this properly. And the chief among them is probably Germany. Now, in the past, the Americans acted as the kind of overall guarantor, not over Europe, not only of European security, but of European unity. And what we're now seeing is America failing um, in that role as a result of the partisan deadlock of Washington, D.C., and what I see as the cowardly nihilism of the um, re Trumpist Republicans in, in, in Congress. And the result of that is that Europe's disunity is becoming much more apparent and much more dangerous. Inside the United States, uh, there is a perfectly re reasonable argument that Europe needs to do more. And I can quite understand why people like J.D. Vance and um, other prominent Republicans say, look, guys, we have other stuff to do now, and you're bigger and richer than us. You need to take responsibility for your own security. What that ignores is a very powerful counter-argument that in order to be top dog, you know, the world's most important and powerful and therefore safest and probably richest country, the United States needs allies, mm -hmm. and allies are perfect. But if you don't have your European allies, you have no chance of standing up to China. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. One sort of on that sort of topic, I mean, do you think the general public is up to speed with the hostility of Russia? And I, I only ask this because I have conversations with people who kind of put themselves on the left. And they ultimately sort of see a lot of this sort of talk about hostile Russia and even a hostile China is just Western warmongering. Um, so uh, is there anything more that can be done to sort of challenge that perception? Well, there's a huge amount to be done. And it's um, mm. and there was a kind of burst, I think, of realism dawned um, after the initial um, full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And for a time, we were seen quite united. But it's one thing to put up flags and light candles and maybe even go to a demo. It's another to accept the um, military risk and political and economic costs 
of actually getting um, national defence done seriously. And I don't think you know, Europe, for the most part, is not is not ready for that. And I think the public's not either, and there's many reasons. I mean, some people would say that it's not surprising that young people are unwilling to defend a country they've been taught to despise. And I think the sort of um, sort of left-wing anti-imperialist sentiment in um, that's very predominant among young people, which is commendable in many ways, and certainly European countries should come to terms with their own um, crimes in the colonial past. Um, but it's not necessarily a great spine stiffener when it comes to standing up against real life imperialism now, whether it's Russian or Chinese imperialism. So I feel the left has got a is you know sees very sharply um the wickedness of the West and doesn't see very sharply um the uh, problems that from from the East. I think on the right, there's still a, a sort of lingering on perhaps even more than lingering admiration for Putin as a strong leader and particularly among people in America who know nothing about this, they say, why don't we team up with this big, strong Christian country um, against China, which the brackets white, I think, is implied there. I don't like that very much. Um, you've also got a little bit of the sort of Slavic solidarity in um, southeastern Europe. And there's also a strong and a streak, a streak of sort of general anti-Westernism on the right, sort of de Gaullist approach. And then you've just got plain old greed, which is very important. Mm, mm, indeed. Uh, yeah, the, the, a lot of people have made a huge amount of money out of servicing Russian kleptocrats, and they would love that that to continue. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, that kind of maybe ties in a little bit to how the West maybe should respond to Navalny's death, because it, we've talked in the past about sort of uh, Russian money in, within the UK banking system, and obviously there are individuals in the West who still profit from uh, Russia. Yes. I mean, I think we could do a great deal more to deal with the enablers, and I've launched a, a, an idea with Bill Browder about a year ago that all the Western countries should put sanctions on the other countries' enablers. So there's not much we can do in Britain about British people who and it maybe work in the Gulf in oil trading or setting up offshore trusts in the Caribbean or whatever. What we can do is to say that if you're an American and doing that sort of work, you can't come to Britain. If you're a Brit doing that sort of work, you can't come to America. If the Europeans would play ball as well, you could say that British and American enablers can't go to the Schengen zone. And we could say to European enablers, um, you can't come to Britain and America. So we can sort of leverage our, our visa sanctions, which to which against which there's no legal recourse. There's no you can't sue your way to a visa, at least not, not in any practical sense. Um and um it'd be a bit like Rick in Casablanca saying, I know who you are, your cash is good as a butt at the bar. You're lucky you're served even there. So there's a lot more we could do, but we don't want to do it because fundamentally this is all about political will. It's not about means. We're much bigger and richer than Russia. Um, we just choose not to um, leverage our um, power and size and wealth against Russia because it's more convenient to keep business as usual. Yeah, yeah. And do you think, just with Navalny, do you think his death will have any effect on Russian domestic politics? I fear not. I mean, Navalny said, if they kill me, it's a sign of weakness. And in a way it is. I mean, I think that the Kremlin is gradually cranking down um, the repressive ratchet down to kind of Soviet levels with um, all sorts of petty acts of resistance being hit very punitively. And that is, in a way, makes the system more brittle. Um, if you won't allow any dissent, 
um, then uh, every you, you spend a huge amount of time policing the most minor infractions. On the other hand, you know, North Korea is still there, so it's not that brutal. Um, so I, I worry, and the Soviet Union lasted for a, a, a long time. So I think the combination of the the war and the sort of nationalist frenzy that that's woken up, um, and the excuse it's given for the Putin clique to um, extend its reach deep into the economy as part of you know, making the war economy that's necessary to fight the war and the sense of international isolation and the world's out to get us. I think there's some legs on this. I think it, it's there's several ways change could happen. One is a push within the Kremlin where the elite gets fed up with Putin. I think that won't happen while the war is supposedly going well. There's possibility of a sort of you know, mass unrest. I don't see much sign of that, although I would just advise li your listeners to keep an eye out for the so-called granny riot, the grannies complaining that their sons are being conscripted or even worse, coming back dead or maimed. So there's some sort of low-level but quite widespread resistance there. Um, and then there's a possibility for a really catastrophic military setback in Ukraine. And if the Ukrainians had the weapons that they needed, and particularly the long-range strikes, and could really disrupt Russian supply lines so the troops are starving and haven't got any ammunition, um, then you might see mutinies and surrenders of a sort of 1917 style. And that was certainly the Ukrainian theory of victory. Um, but they can't do that without the long-range precision strikes that um, they need from us, in which we are so far um, not giving them or not giving them in large enough numbers. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, Putin's political future does appear to be linked to the success of his invasion of Ukraine. What does it mean for Ukraine and the West if Russia were to win this war? It's catastrophe. Mm. You'll see a, I mean, if there's a serious military setbacks in Ukraine and Ukraine's force, you'll see refugees in very large numbers um, heading east from cities. If we have you know, cities like Kharkiv and Dnipro, fall or even worse kiev and odessa that's millions of people on the move because they don't want to stick around to see what life's like under russian occupation um and i i believe i was talking to a senior ukrainian the other day who said that the russian goal for the war is to get the three cities that really matter which are Kharkiv, odessa and kiev and to turn the rest of ukraine into a wasteland mm. that sounds quite quite that rings true and that will you know there's 20 30 million people who won't want to stick around in that case so that's very destabilizing. Worse, you, um, Russia will be able to use the economic and agricultural industrial potential of Ukraine to boost itself. It may conscript Ukrainians into its own armed forces. Um, it gives a tremendous boost to Putin, and then his appetite won't stop. So it may be Moldova, it may be Georgia, maybe um, Azerbaijan, maybe Central Asia. Um, I think he would um, be very tempted to take a crack at the Baltic states on the grounds the West has shown itself to be profoundly unserious. And Baltic states are defensible only with the full weight of the West behind them. Uh, we already know we haven't really got America, and what's left in Europe isn't terribly impressive. So, I think if I was Putin, I would be um, that would be very high up my to-do list. If that happens, then we've you know that, that's the end of NATO, and we face a, a a Europe again of the 1930s. Yeah, definitely, and it doesn't really bode well considering with Donald Trump's recent comments about um, how certain NATO members don't pay enough and he would allow Russia to sort of do whatever the hell they want. And and I don't know how likely it is that Donald Trump will become the next president of the United States, but certainly that seems to be the big question hanging over Europe and NATO at the moment. Yeah, well, we did. I mean, the first Trump presidency wasn't actually that bad in practice, although it was terrible in theory. Um, and we'll see. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm less hysterical about Trump than some of my friends in the Democratic Party. And I think that 
you know, although Trump said, I won't defend the countries that don't pay, um, the obverse of that is I will defend the countries that do pay. And Trump is very transactional. He also doesn't like to be seen as weak. And I think if a, a NATO country that was spending 2% was attacked, Trump perhaps wouldn't want to be the person to be the sort of uh, um, you know, the, the, the NATO, NATO's undertaker. Um, and I think that the people around Trump are not stupid. Um, they have different views from us. They do think that NATO is overextended. Some of them said things to me like, we're not going to go to war for a field in southern Lithuania. Um, but you know, there's, 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 it's not completely hopeless. And I think that Trump would be, I mean, in a way, Trump's irrationality is actually quite a deterrent with this extremely sort of finely grained nuanced approach of the Biden law to always think about red lines and choose their language very carefully. It's very easy for other countries, whether it's China, Iran, or Russia, to play a kind of grandmother's footsteps. So you go absolutely up to the line and tiptoe over it and wait for the line to move. If you're dealing with a sort of Trumpian volcano, mm. um, who knows what he's going to do? So I can I can see arguments for being mm. less I'm worried, but I, that doesn't help Ukraine. Well, no, this is the thing, because why Why are the Republicans then blocking aid to Ukraine? Because surely that would resolve a lot of problems if they did give more aid to Ukraine. Well, it would and it wouldn't. I mean, it would certainly postpone. I mean, what Ukraine needs is a really decisive military advantage, and I don't think 60 billion is going to deliver that. Mm. And so we focus on this because it's the matter at hand. But fundamentally, the West has, has already lost the opportunity to help Ukraine decisively because we didn't start our artillery and barrels and ammunition production fast at the beginning of the war. And we've shown ourselves fundamentally to sort of divided and scared, and that's a you know, bad thing to show. Um, so I'm, I'm quite pessimistic about that, I'm afraid. I think that the, um, the Republicans in Congress feel that you know, Trump's against this, so we're against it. And they don't really care. Um, you know, there's not many votes in Ukraine if you're a congressman like uh, Mike, Mike, you know, Speaker Mike Johnson. And I think it's also worth noting we have not done a good job in making the American heartland see that this is their business. We've taken everything for granted, and our diplomats spend far too much time in Washington, D.C., and far too little time traveling around. We hang out with Democrats who basically agree with us, and we don't hang out with Republicans who don't. And I think that the Europeans have got a lot of, and, and the Europeans have consistently underspent on defence for years and years and years. And the Americans are rightly very cross about that. Mm, mm. Are there any sort of final thoughts? Oh, we've hardly touched on the espionage side. And I think that there's one thing that's um, clear is that Russia's um, ability to conduct subversion, assassination, influence operations in the West mm. is... Uh, far from being dealt with. We had, a, a, I think, a rather, again, naive, wishful thinking that expelling a lot of Russian diplomats and their embassies would cripple both GRU and SVR and FSB efforts, and that's not really the case. And um, both Russia and China are stepping up their um, efforts in ways that we don't fully understand, and uh, and I feel that we're very vulnerable to that. And uh, so there's a, 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 a yeah, we've we've we focused in our discussion very much on the military side. But the military side is only one bit. We need to think about civil and civilian resilience, psychological resilience, the sort of thing that Finland does very well and most other countries hardly do at all. Um so we are still at the very in the foothills of of what we need to do at a time when our enemies are on the front foot. And I, I'm afraid we're in an extremely dangerous and difficult 
situation. And I fear that our decision makers and the public have not really begun to grasp quite how difficult and dangerous it is. How do we address that, do you think, in the UK? I think you've got to tell the truth that our defence, we spend a lot on defence and get extraordinarily little for it. Um, yeah, I blame our defence planners and I blame our services for their squabbling and extravagance. I blame the politicians. But it's going to be, it's going to be expensive to set this right and it's going to involve a whole of society effort. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm running for Parliament because I got so fed up with trying to tell politicians what to do and them not listen. I thought I'd better become a politician myself. And um, who knows, maybe next time we speak, I'll actually be in Parliament and then you'll be able to um, ask me why I haven't managed to do anything. <laughs> well, well, best of luck with your parliamentary ambitions there. And uh, um, and we'll see how that goes. And we've obviously got an election coming up this year, so I hope that goes well. Not, not necessarily. It could be in January next Ooh, year. Okay, okay. Could be in January. Do you think they'll drag it that long quite possibly <laughs> well edward thank you very much for your time excellent questions as always and thanks so much for having me on the show bye-bye thank you take care goodbye Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.